Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans where our focus will be verses 5 through 8. That's Romans chapter 3, 5 through 8. And you can find that text on page 1106 in your pew Bibles. The Apostle Paul has at this point in our look together at this epistle made crystal clear a couple of things for his hearers. First, there is nothing in this world that Paul loves more than the precious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. And in it, the righteousness of Almighty God is revealed. His greatest desire is to speak of the glories of Jesus Christ to all of those who so desperately need to hear it. And for these gathered in Rome, of course, they are no exception. And that leads us to his second point. All men desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, there could be nothing in all of life that anyone could need anymore. They need it more than the things they take in to sustain their physical, mortal bodies. They need it more than they need satisfaction in the things of this world. They need it more than even they need the love of their brethren. They need it more than they need the very air that they breathe. And Paul is speaking, in a sense here, to the two great people groups which comprise all of humanity. He is speaking to a mixed group here in Rome. There are gathered there both Gentiles, those of the nations, and Jews. In many ways, they could not be any more different from one another. The Jewish people were God's chosen nation. They had received His revelation. They were those who were in possession of the oracles of God. They were those who bore on their bodies the physical mark of circumcision. A constant reminder of God's gracious covenant made with their father Abraham. The Gentiles, on the other hand, as a people, were largely idolaters. Most often pagan in their religious practice. And they were seen as those who were living in open rebellion against the God who is. The God who alone reigns over all creation. They were two very different peoples with two very different histories. And yet we have seen the Apostle Paul so far in this letter of his to these gathered together in Rome unifies them in two universal great truths. Truths that made them far more similar than they were different. Truths that unified these two people groups far more than their nationalities made them different. What were, or I should say, what are those truths? Well, they're really quite simple. First of all, mankind is sinful. Even born into this world in outright rebellion against Almighty God. All of mankind fell in common... 
fell with our common father and mother, with Adam and Eve in the garden. And because of, the, of that fall, the image that we all bear, that is the image of God, has become marred in man, corrupted, flawed. Our greatest inclination, apart from the grace of God, is evil continually. And the second thing is this, all of mankind needs the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. It's only in Him that we can become reconciled to the Father. It's only as we trust Him through faith, which is the gift of Almighty God, that we can begin the process of having that image restored. It's only in Him that we are saved entirely from the dire consequences of our sin. As Jesus Christ Himself came to this world and bore the penalty that we have earned with both our law-breaking bent and our actions. He and He alone came to this world and kept perfectly all the holy requirements of the law of God. And any righteousness we have comes by means of His righteousness being imputed to us. And it's sufficient for us both now and for all of eternity. Man desperately needs to be saved from the wrath of God because of sin. And salvation from that wrath comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it becomes very apparent in this letter that the things which unify all of mankind are far more significant than the things that divide them. I want you to understand, the Apostle Paul has been very matter-of-fact here. He has not sugar-coated anything, but he has given to the church of Jesus Christ the cold, hard truth. Yet we can also say that though the truth certainly can be, and often is, painful, it has been a deep love for the people of God and for the gospel itself that has motivated the Apostle Paul to speak so frankly of matters of such great importance. And even as he sets his sights upon the Jewish people and their rejection of the revelation of God, Paul has been incredibly loving and gracious in his delivery. And you've probably noticed it. We've noticed it in other letters. He has not once resorted to condescension. He has not become so vexed with their thick-headedness that he's resorted to mockery. And he has most certainly not failed to deal with the many, many objections that he knew would arise in the face of such accusations as he has had to make. He's dealt very thoroughly with all of them. And in doing so, he has successfully left them without excuse. He will not comfort anyone with false hope. And so he has kicked out from under them every prop upon which their false hopes rested. The last time we looked together at this letter, we looked at two objections born out of his treatment with them. First, he dealt with the foolish notion that if what he was saying about the superiority of inward righteousness over mere external behavior was indeed true, 
then what was even the advantage of being named as God's chosen people at all? Paul answered them in essence saying, you have been given the word of God and it's powerful. The Almighty has invested that word with power. From your childhood you have heard it. It's his revelation to man. And you have it in your possession. Truly there could be no greater advantage. Secondly, flowing out of the reasoning given to the first objection, they then argued that if God had indeed revealed it, and it could be rejected by his own people, then did not that doctrine then call into question the faithfulness of God himself and keeping to his covenant promise? Of course, you remember Paul answered with an emphatic negative. He said, certainly not, may it never be, do not even suggest such a thing. God is always faithful, or truly there is no such thing as hope. It all rests upon his being faithful. He has never proved to be anything less. In fact, he is just as faithful when he punishes sin as he is when he graciously forgives it by punishing another In our place. Sin always deserves punishment. The full punishment of the law. And he must must punish it to remain faithful. And just. You could see a progression away from the actual subject at hand. In those first two objections. And as we look together at the text that is before us this morning. I think you will see that that progression away from the main topic at hand grows even more. Why is that? Well, beloved, let's look to the Word of God together again this morning. And by the grace of God, through the work of His Holy Spirit, let us all seek to gain an even deeper understanding of the depraved nature of man and consequently a much, much greater appreciation for the gospel that Paul is so eager to speak before all men everywhere. So I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from the Holy inerrant and infallible word of God this morning, Romans chapter 3, again verses 5 through 8. Hear now the word of our Lord. Paul writing says this, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning to have the opportunity to come before your word. We pray that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, that you would take away those many things that distract us, that we would give our attention to your word this morning and hearing your word through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by it for your glory. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I can remember taking a lifeguards course with the Cub Scouts when I was a young boy. And one of the things, probably the only thing that remained with me from that course, I still remember vividly today, some 35 or maybe more years later, was the instructor's terrifying warnings about the dangers in saving a drowning person. I never forgot it. They told us when we were sitting in that class that when a person is drowning, most often they become panicked. And in a panicked and desperate state, they become desperate to stay above the water where they can at least gasp for air and fight for life. And they will often kick and flail and grasp at anything in order to try and keep their head above water. And it can, of course, be a real danger for the one who's wanting to save their life. And drowning becomes a real and present danger for both the one needing rescue and the rescuer himself. Desperate people often take desperate measures for self-preservation. And when desperation rules the day, foolishness often reigns. And of course, the results can be tragic. I think we see that here in the objections that are being raised by those whom Paul is seeking to save. Man hates nothing more than to be confronted with his sin. It can be devastating to see just how far we often fail to come even close to the mark of the perfect holy law of God and His Word. And really, there are only two reactions to such a confrontation. One is to fall on your face as David did when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. To recognize the truth, to cry out and beg for the mercy of God. To genuinely repent to acknowledge the justice of God in your own condemnation and to throw yourself upon the mercy of God like David does in Psalm 51. To turn from your sin and run to the cross of Jesus Christ where the justice of God and the mercy of God meet and kiss one another. Unfortunately, looking at the progression away from the real matter at hand, these objections seem to be moving further and further away from genuine repentance and are beginning to look a little bit more like desperation. Desperately lashing out, flailing away, seeking for someone else, for anyone else, to bear the guilt of any wrongdoing. And yet the Apostle Paul the loving shepherd that he is, stays the course in his correction. He is fighting for the life and death of the sheep charged to his care. And he will not be provoked into lashing back. In the Christian life, we often find a kind of pendulum swing in existence amongst God's people. And on one side of the wide arc of that swing is legalism. People who in general want to so emphasize the justice of Almighty God that they are willing to diminish His grace. That's what leads one into legalism. 
And we talk about that one a lot, so I'm not going to go into great detail in it this morning other than to say this. Those people are never as good as they think they are. And if they truly understood the justice of God, they of all people would be the most afraid of it and the most desperate to seek His mercy and His grace. But on the other end of that swing, all the way to the other pole, is antinomianism. People who wish to emphasize the grace of God at the expense of His justice. These people usually operate under the false assumption that the grace of God cancels out the justice of God. God is so gracious that he just sweeps our sin under the rug. He's unmoved by it. He turns a blind eye to it. He might even pity us. And really, we should just do whatever we want to do and expect the grace of God. And therein find our peace. But loved, somewhere in the middle of the ark is a place where the pendulum comes to a rest at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there, the justice of God against our sin meets the grace of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I want for us to understand this. There's a constant debate going on about who's a legalist and who's an antinomian in the Reformed Church. We need to wrap our minds around this. The justice of God is satisfied as Jesus Christ takes our penalty for our sin upon himself. And his grace is manifested clearly to those who see through the power of his Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ the sacrifice that reconciles sinners with their God for all of eternity. It leads one not towards a life of turning a blind eye upon our sin and simply downplaying it, but towards living lives before the face of Almighty God that are truly sacrifices of praise. Lives lived in grateful obedience to the God who saves, even though that obedience itself is but a flicker while we still wear this pound of corrupted flesh on this side of glory. Beloved, I want us to understand that gratitude becomes our highest desire. It becomes the motivation to live the Christian life. A desperate man must, by the grace of God, find the center of that ark. The flesh will always seek to pull us towards one of the poles. And for these Jewish brothers and sisters to whom Paul has been speaking so candidly with, they had been running towards the legalism end. And so their flesh is desperately struggling. It's waging war in order to cling to one pull of the other in this sweeping ark and hold on for dear life. Even as Paul is showing them that true rest can only be found in the gospel. Their desperate struggle, indeed the struggle of all men in light of the gospel, is evidenced this morning in this text. This is what desperate people do. They are pole jumpers. They seek to stay in the dark corners, in the shadows, and flee completely from the light in the center. 
They are drug into the light of God's revelation, and so they fight for all that they are worth to be on one of the extreme ends, back into the dark, back into the shadows. And the result of that flight is to fall headlong into foolishness, to argue into what can only be called absurdity, to shift the blame anywhere else, even if the God that they claim to serve must himself take the blame. Look at their final two objections here. That's what's going on. The two are very similar. First they say, well, wait a minute, Paul. If what you are saying is true, that is, if God is faithful, even in condemning the sin that you say exists in our own lives, the lives of his chosen people, If God is glorified, as you say, Paul, in punishing sin, if our unrighteousness somehow demonstrates the righteousness of God, then how can he ever inflict his wrath upon those vessels being used to bring about his glory? We understand that line of thought, don't we? If God is being glorified, Paul, as you have said, by meeting out his wrath against the very vessels of that glory, then he must be unjust. How could a just God punish those who in the ultimate sense are merely serving their purpose and bringing him glory? And again, the argument moves away from the deadly consequences of sin and it moves away from their own responsibility to repent And to cling to Jesus Christ and it runs anywhere else. It is the desperation of the flesh against the truth. Do you see the pendulum swing here? This is a swing, I want you to understand, from legalism into antinomianism. They have been confronted with just how poorly they do at keeping the law. In fact, you see here that they're not even denying it. Paul's case against them really has been irrefutable. But rather than running to the cross, they swing clear past it to the other side, where they could just then remain aloof over the sin in their lives. After all, they're bringing God glory. How could he be displeased with them? It's absurd, isn't it? It's a desperate plunge into more and more foolishness. But you understand, Paul is unmoved. Look at how he answers them. Again, it's that emphatic, emotional negative. Certainly not. May it never be. Do not even suggest such a thing. If that were true, then how could God ever judge the world at all? You understand what Paul's saying. He's saying you prove too much. No one among them is denying the judgment of God. The Gentiles and their contempt for them as Jews was proof that these people believed, even desired the judgment of God, at least for the Gentiles. But if God was not justified in judging sin, then how could he ever judge anyone or anything at all? 
They are seeking to blame God for their sin. Rather than owning the fact that they are sinners standing in the need of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is the only place where the justice of God and the grace of God meet in perfect harmony. In the gospel, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is revealed. From the strength of the language here, beloved, one gets the idea that what they are doing is a very dangerous thing. They are comfortable with pointing out injustice in God. It's interesting, if you look at the cross-reference here in your Bibles, they probably point you to Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, we have the narrative that took place between Abraham and the Lord regarding the impending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the grievous sin that was going on there. Undoubtedly, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with that story. Unfortunately, I want to tell you it's a story that we all too often get completely wrong. I've heard this story told many times in order to extol the virtue of Abraham. Right? Abraham cares so much for the people. He seeks to protect the people from God's wrath. The Lord tells him what he's about to do and Abraham begins to question God himself in order to stay his hand, to change his mind. What does Abraham appeal to in this discussion? Justice. Abraham approaches this harbinger of ill tidings, somewhat shocked, and he says this, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous in the city. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. The Lord allows for Abraham to see the absurdity of what he was insinuating, that there was even a possibility of injustice with God. Abraham is thinking like a man, and he's expecting God to do as he does. And so the two of them go back and forth. Fifty? No. Not if I find fifty righteous. How about forty-five? No. Not if I find forty-five. How about 40? No, not if I find 40 righteous. 30? 20? 10? No, not if I find 10. Well, what's the point? Beloved, we need to understand that Abraham is asking the wrong question. Is Abraham making sure that God reads the whole report? That he is completely informed about what he is doing in Sodom and Gomorrah? Is Abraham protecting God from the charge of injustice? No. Abraham ought to be asking, why not destroy us all? Abraham is becoming more and more aware that the fact of the matter is that there are none Righteous. God is never unjust. If he is, quite frankly, 
He's not God. Do you understand? So Paul says to these Romans, don't even go there. You're avoiding the real issue, which is your own desperate need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You're moving 100% in the wrong direction. You are arguing like flesh. You're trying to justify your sin through bringing the infinite down to your own finite rationalizations. Let God be true and every man a liar or there is no hope for any of us. Is God a man that he should reason as a man? Are you more clever than God? You have heard what God has said. Will you argue for your reasoning above as being of more value than what Almighty God has revealed? You really get a sense of the desperate, even brute stupidity, the ignorance of sin here, do you not? And Paul brings it home by showing them the logical end to such reasoning in verses 7 and 8. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I also still judged a sinner? Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As if evil means justify good ends. It's an absurd notion. God does not bring glory to himself through sin, but through the just punishment of sin. He must punish it, either in Jesus Christ at the cross or in the sinner himself, but he will never, ever neglect to bring justice. Why? Well, beloved, it's something we hear constantly as we read through the Old Testament because he will be regarded as holy. God is holy. You understand, there's nothing unholy about him. Throughout scripture, this fact is driven home again and again and again, like the booming of a resounding drum. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, they decide to take worship into their own hands. And they offer up their own clever version of fire before the Lord, and God kills them both instantly. He takes their life. Why? Because he will be regarded as holy. He will bring perfect justice. You remember Uzzah, the man who reached out his hand to steady the untouchable Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant to keep it from falling off the cart to the earth and immediately God takes his life. Why? Because Uzzah foolishly believed that his hand was cleaner than the ground. And he reached out and he profaned what God said was holy and was not to be touched. God will be regarded as holy. Isaiah comes into contact with the holiness of God in the temple and he begins to come apart at the seams. He unravels. Why? Because what is unholy cannot abide in the presence of what is holy. 
We see it with Jesus every time his deity is displayed before the disciples. They quake in fear. Why? Because it is a terrifying thing to be in the presence of the holiness of Almighty God while being in this sinful flesh. Does the holiness of Almighty God revealed to you dictate where you are willing to go with your reasoning? Beloved, it ought to. It is precisely why we need what only Jesus Christ can give. His righteousness is referred to again and again as our covering. Our unholiness is covered by His perfect holiness. And so we can stand with confidence in both the day of judgment and right now. Because God has said that that holiness is sufficient. Beloved, do you understand? You know, we often will flee anywhere else when confronted with our unholiness. And Paul is showing to us the lunacy of such an exercise. Paul is saying to them, is this what you really believe that I am preaching to you? That you should do evil that good may come? It's a common attack against the radical gospel of God's grace. And yet Paul says, it's foolishness. Your condemnation is just if you think so little of the holiness of Almighty God. And beloved, I want to close by turning our gaze upon ourselves this morning. I want to ask you, where are you living on this pendulum swing of the Christian life? What are you pulled towards? Legalism? The Word of God proves that you're not as good as you pretend to be. And you know that you're not. Scripture condemns you at every turn. The Christian life is not a life of Oscar-winning performances. It is a life of inward reality being manifested in outward fruit. Love of God and love of your neighbor. But what about the other end? Antinomianism. Do you honestly think that the grace of God is bolstered when you live as if consciences were the things of the Pharisees? As if there is no justice with God regarding sin. As if there were no cost for your sin. Paul will go into this even in even further detail in chapter 6. But this morning, I'm asking you to consider whether you too reason as a fool. Doing evil, thinking somehow that God is glorified in it. Seeking to shine the light away from you so that you can have a little bit of peace. Listen to me, beloved. The peace that you seek. The peace that you so desperately need will only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the cross. (laughs) There, God's justice in punishing your sin in Jesus Christ is satisfied. 
He stood where you should be. There and there alone, your motivation for godly obedience ceases to be mere duty and becomes your greatest desire. There and only there, your hunger and your thirst for righteousness is quenched to the full and satisfied. But I want you to understand, fleeing to the poles is tiresome work. Rest does not exist in that pursuit. Confidence, assurance, and joy will all flee you like a thief. It's never a good idea to justify yourself before God. It's a desperation move. It's a panicked flailing of the arms. It's a struggle to keep your head above the water, even at the expense of your rescuer. And it always ends in death. The truth is, at the cross, you receive all that you could ever need to make your pilgrimage through this life towards the glory of your true home. If you bypass it, you set your roots here, you prove that you are no pilgrim at all, and you anxiously await the day of your final judgment. Beloved, how do you view your sin this morning? I'm going to close by leaving the words of our confession ringing in your ears this morning. This attitude is dealt with both in the Heidelberg Catechism as well as the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 24. And in consideration of time this morning, I'm only going to read the Heidelberg, but I want to encourage you to spend some time looking at Article 24 of the Belgic Confession of Faith in the coming week. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we get a clear perspective on the Christian life in questions 86 and 87. I want you to listen to them in closing this morning, and I want you to think upon them, considering what we've been looking at this morning in Romans chapter 3. Question and answer 86, it asks this. Since then, we are redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we do good works? This is the answer. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. That with our whole life, we show ourselves thankful to God for his blessing. And that he be glorified through us. Then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof, and by our godly walk, win also others to Christ. And then the follow-up, question 87. Can they then not be saved, who do not turn to God from their unthankful, unrepentant life? The answer is sobering. By no means. For as Scripture says, no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, where do you go when you are confronted by your own sin? The pull of legalism? Hiding behind a piety that you yourself know is false. There's no peace there. 
Or do you swing over to the other side? Antinomianism. Making light of your sin. Pretending that you are helping God to exhibit His graciousness at the expense of His justice. There's no peace there either. To find peace, you must leap off from the ride of your jumping between the poles. You must leave behind your excuses. You must stop your blame shifting. You must cease your rationalizations. And you must land on the rock of Jesus Christ. You must live there. And I want to tell you, life there is not a burden. Life there is delighting in what God has done for you despite your failure, despite your weakness. Living in Christ with joy and confidence and grateful obedience and absolute worship before the face of God with the confidence of one who has been made entirely holy in Him. Only the holiness of Jesus Christ is and will always be sufficient. Is it sufficient for you this morning? Beloved, let's pray.